This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. And this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. Today's guest is Satya Doyle Bayok. She's a psychotherapist who primarily sees people in their 20s and 30s. Her new book, Quarter Life, The Search for Self in Early Adulthood, explores this profound stage of life when so many of us are figuring out who we are in the world. Today, we talk about the mixed messages quarter lifers receive from society about who and what they're supposed to be and why this period is so often overlooked. Satya posits that quarter life is about forging both stability and meaning, yet quarter lifers often lack the support they need to succeed. We talk about how the midlife crisis relates to all of this, and Satya shares her thoughts on the great resignation and how we can start to prepare our younger generation for their quarter life. Okay. Let's get right to our chat. I'm really excited to chat with you today about your book. I think there's so much of it that I feel is pretty poignant and necessary for the time, especially for folks who are in that time in their lives and and haven't really necessarily seen anything that speak so acutely to the issues and the tensions that can show up in that stage of life. So your work combines Jungian psychology, trauma-informed therapy, and socio-political critique, which I think is so key. Oftentimes they're not fused together. Can you take us back to the start of your quarter-life journey? How did you come to being a therapist? And, And why are you so interested in this stage of life? 
I got interested in this time of life as I think most therapists find their way to their specialty through their own hurt and wounds in some way. And certainly for me, this time of life was not just confusing and complicated, but really existentially painful. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing and, and didn't understand how to find my way in the external world, but also a sense of meaning or purpose or, you know, what I was doing on this planet in this time of life in this time of the world. So, so I got interested in this time of life when I was in it. And at the time found Jungian psychology, I found Carl Jung's memoir, sort of his memoir called Memories, Dreams and Reflections and really just felt like, okay, wait, here is something, here's an area of psychology that's truly interesting to me that maybe can help provide some sense of guidance or, you know, a, some sense of a path ahead. But I also found within Jungian psychology was almost entirely focused on midlife, on the, the idea of the second half of life and beyond. So I had to start kind of fusing together my own understanding of this time of life. Can you describe what is quarter life? So quarter life is my own naming for this stage of life that I'm sort of postulating or offering is, is roughly begins at age 16 to 20 and roughly ends ages 36 to 40. It begins at the end of the first quarter. It is the second quarter of life. It's the first part of adulthood, the second quarter of life. And of course, we've heard for a long time about the quarter life crisis and quarter life in different ways. I'm trying to really offer a name for this stage of life. So I talk about it as quarter life beyond the crisis, that we don't just need to speak about quarter life as being a time of kind of meltdown, that it's also like, okay, what are we all doing in these years? What are we supposed to be doing in these years to find ourselves and to find our sense of what both stability and meaning. You have two groups that you've identified in the book as stability types and meaning types. What are the difference between those two archetypes to, to live inside of a, a Jungian framework, yeah. let's say? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it's a, it's a very rough typology, rough in the sense that I really want people to find themselves in this space versus adhere to any label too strictly. But what I'm suggesting is that there are people who tend to start out quarter life or kind of enter into adulthood feeling as though they are fitting in to social norms more or less or want to fit into social norms more or less. And there are folks who don't. And the folks who I find are fitting in are people I call stability types and people who are really struggling to fit into social norms are I refer to as meaning types. And again, already those are two, two simplistic breakdowns. I, I open it up much more in the book and really want people to self-identify. But the notion is that, you know, historically developmental psychology, as far as adulthood has gone, has only focused on the idea of stability, that the goals have been in adulthood to, you know, get married, have kids, get a college degree, start a career, continue a career, whatever those things look like. And that, that doesn't work for everybody. I mean, it actually doesn't work arguably for most people, but for the folks who can kind of fake it and make it they're they tend to feel more or less comfortable in this space, or at least are able to show up with stability goals. So again, I refer to those folks as stability types and generally the artists 
or the outsiders, the creative types, folks seeking more of a spiritual life, I refer to them as meaning types. Ultimately, what I postulate is that both sides, both types need to find some sense of stability and meaning. So express to me, what does it mean to be fitting in versus not fitting in when I'm thinking about the stability versus meaning? Like, like who is that? What does that look like in the real world? I will start with myself. When, when I was coming of age, it felt like even though no one had literally handed me a script and said, here is what you're supposed to be doing with your life, there was a general sense, a general sense of a ladder to climb or boxes to check that to be a functional adult in America meant you certainly can pay your own bills, even though no one's really ever taught us much career acumen or financial planning, let alone trades. You know, we're sent into a liberal arts education or we're sent through high school, whatever our terminal degree is, it's academic, right? And so it just felt as though we were all being sort of given this checklist to say, okay, be functional, don't be a mess, find a long-term partner, be monogamous, at some point, relatively soon, you're wanna, gonna wanna consider marriage and children. You're probably gonna want a mortgage. You know, there were all, all this sense that you were still supposed to be climbing some kind of social ladder, but it didn't really make sense to me where we were going on that ladder, but that that was quote unquote normal. There was some sense of normal adulthood had these kind of goals of stability in place. And that always felt quite confusing to me. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I think I was trying to tease out how to identify that because I think for me, I, I guess I would say I kind of borderline the two. I'm sure you may feel that that's possible or is oh, that yeah. possible to be both? Of course. Possible to be both. Yeah. The goal is to be both. And that's the, you know, the difficulty of, of doing this too simplistically that really what I'm saying is the goal is we're all seeking a life of stability and meaning, which is to say we want to feel secure and safe in the world. Most of us are not comfortable with constant turbulence. Some of us thrive on that in different ways, but even that it's like we each need a degree of stability, a degree of meaning. Different ones of us are gonna find ourselves on that spectrum in different ways, right? But ultimately, we all need sort of an inner life and an external life, and that's what this is about. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. 
So how are the quarter lifers of today different than the ones that came before us? Because I do feel that there's a distinct shift. Can you tell me what your sense of the shift is as we get into it? I think one of the reasons why I'm curious about it is because I think that there are specific contacts. Obviously, you know, my experience as a quarter lifer as a black gay woman, first generation child of immigrants is going to be very different to a white hetero person who was say born here and doesn't have an immigrant background necessarily or one that they could identify. Yeah, for sure. So I, I try to offer a lot of social context in the book and, and can only hope I've succeeded in that. A lot of what I talk about is that the goals of stability are fundamentally based on the white, male, hetero, wealthy archetype, if you want to call it that. And that it's then sort of been forced upon everyone else. So that for all of history, there have been people for whom the climbing the ladder of white, hetero, or male, you know, whatever, however you want to simplify these ladders, but ultimately, you know, you can call it capitalism. We're climbing ladders that aren't about relationship. They aren't about creativity. They aren't about relationship with a god or goddesses or ones in our life. They're about achievement, accomplishment, and acquisition of wealth. And so part of what I talk about at the beginning, I, I bring up the French feminist Simone de Beauvoir and American feminism and, and talk about the trapped housewife. Very often these women who were starting to lose their minds, even though they had supposedly the perfect life of stability in adulthood, they were losing their minds in neurosis and suffering. And most of them were quarter lifers. I mean, the folks about whom American feminism is initially based are these younger wives who are suddenly, they've checked all the boxes they were supposed to check and they're losing their minds, you know? So I, I bring that up. I talk about Richard Wright, the extraordinary American author who basically was, you know, he's born early 1900s in the Jim Crow South as a black man and wanted desperately to be a writer. His memoir originally called American Hunger. He doesn't talk about Gertrude Stein specifically, but I mean, he was studying language and writing in the most exquisite way and was not finding any support around him to be a creative artist because his job was to somehow figure out how to make money, build wealth, get a wife at some point, right? So I'm trying to explore in understanding this notion of stability and meaning, how very different people from very different backgrounds can actually find a sense of purpose and a sense of joy in their lives and not just sort of be clamoring for these goals that were never set up to support them to begin with. So in your practice, you see people in their 20s and 30s. That's the stage of life that we're looking at. Can we kind of just anchor ourselves in from what age to what age does this quarter life period exist? I put forth that it is somewhere around age 16 to 20 that it begins and concludes somewhere around 36 to 40. So in the same way that puberty doesn't happen at the same age for everyone, it happens over a range of years. Like any biological developmental changes happen in a range. They don't happen with one birthday, right? But generally I'm suggesting that quarter life begins around 16 to 20 and ends around 36 to 40. 
given that there is this kind of phasic rollout of it. What are those pillars of quarter life? So I really wanted to find a way to offer some structure for what development in quarter life looks like. Again, without suggesting, if you just do these things and check these boxes, your life is going to be great and everything's going to be easy and don't worry about it. I didn't want to perpetuate the kind of acquisition model that I think most of us are raised with, certainly in America and the Western world. So I'm, I did my best to offer what I called four pillars of growth in quarter life. And those four pillars are separate, listen, build, and integrate. And the notion is that there's self-work, there's relationship work, there's creative work to do in each of those areas to help create the life that's going to feel healthiest and most supportive for you. So to separate is to really work on your own self-identity as well as the structures of your life. Um, So it may be moving away from home, shifting, separating your relationship with your folks. It may be deciding to leave a close group of college friends because you don't really feel like you fit in with them anymore. It could mean leaving a church community that doesn't feel safe or right for you. So to separate means separating yourself both physically, but also mentally and emotionally from the identity that you were raised in, you know, or the multiple identities in which you were raised. To listen is to really be present with yourself. What is the healing that needs to happen truly? You know, it's being honest with yourself. What healing needs to happen from childhood trauma? What activities are you longing to participate in, but are too scared to pursue? What kind of divination practices have you always been curious about learning so you can kind of pick up other knowledge that dominant Western culture doesn't respect typically? So it's really having more of that soft relational and receptive quality with yourself. The third pillar is to build, which is more of the effort. It's more of the willpower. It's saying, okay, what do I need to put in place in regards to discipline, commitment, effort, maybe even strength building, you know, to really create the life I actually want to have and live in this world. It might be activism. It might be, you know, you always wanted to knit. And so you're going to finally learn how to to knit from somebody you respect and you're going to practice every single day. You know, it could be anything. What is exciting about it to me and what's so fun being a clinician with this time of life is you see people's exquisite individuality start to come through things that I would never have imagined that they might be interested in, or I couldn't with my lived experience come up with such a thing, but for them, they've always been drawn to something X, Y, whatever this thing is, and they, they start pursuing it. And it's really fun to watch those things unfold and develop. That's creating one's own life with true effort. The fourth pillar is to integrate, which is less about any explicit work and more about watching everything really come together. And I wanted to honor that it is actually possible to transform your life, that it's not just a notion or something people talk about, but that how many times I've seen with clients, if we put in the work of self-knowledge and self-development and also, you know, supporting society to transform, to be better, things can change. You know, hearing that first pillar about separating 
have you seen a lot of separation happening in your practice when it comes to work? You know, we're hearing a lot and reading a lot and probably experiencing in our own personal relationships, a lot of people leaving their jobs and this idea of the great resignation. What do you make of that kind of cultural phenomenon of that happening right now and what you see in and around the quarter life experience writ large? Yeah, there's a character in my book named Mira, and she starts to really struggle with her career path and starts truly considering leaving a position that she's realizing more and more is kind of a toxic place for her. And I think her story mirrors a lot of what's been happening during the pandemic, which is as people have genuinely had a break from the endless stress or the kind of toxic culture, the the you know, unrelenting days and unrelenting schedules, we've all had a large awakening of, wait a second, life doesn't have to be like this. My life doesn't have to be like this. And I've seen quite a number of my clients really embrace creative lives that they would not have previously embraced or embraced downtime and alone time they would not have previously embraced. And I think that is part of this work I'm talking about versus just climbing the ladders or checking the boxes or adhering to what society expects of you. It really is, can be a radical self-questioning. Wait a second. Is this healthy for me? Are these my values? Is this the way I want to be living? And being able to make a choice to pivot in some way. Some people pivot without any issue, but I would think for most of us, there can come some self-doubt or questioning that also seems like an innate part of adulthood how much struggle and how much doubt are we supposed to endure when we're trying to figure out what our meaning is or our purpose you know how bad does it have to get or it's already gotten really bad and i'm deciding to leave or make that change how much doubt is okay to know that you're making the right decision and and how much of that is in our control. This is why I love working with people individually because it is so person to person, the amount of doubt that is, uh, how do we say, you know, healthy or unhealthy. There's no one answer to it, unfortunately. You know, there are clients of mine, for instance, who I can see doubting and doubting and doubting but what they're really doing is just avoiding making a change that they already know needs to happen. And between the two of us, we know that. We can tell that, we can talk about it. We, we know their patterns, you know? Whereas there's another person who's doubting and doubting and doubting because they struggle with self-worth in such a profound way. And so that there's something there that needs to be healed, right? There's maybe others who doubt it from deep held religious beliefs that they were raised with. And so they struggle to believe that they're allowed to do something. And so I really encourage folks, of course, to, to find a solid therapist to work with, because I don't think that this is easily done just through reading a book. I mean, my hope is that everything that we're speaking about can help people to start finding their way, but it is such an individual journey, which I say at the outset, we have to do this as individual creatures with our own patterns, our own histories, our own belief systems, all of that. A cultural experience that we all seem to understand is this idea of a midlife crisis, but do those two periods relate to each other? Where does that land in 
in your psyche? Well, my sense is that sort of two things are happening. One, that the midlife crisis, the way that it has historically been spoken about, does not include what I call meaning types. The midlife crisis, again, is really based on a white male hetero journey in which he, you know, was successful, got married, had the kids, had a long-term career, and didn't really pay attention in a deep way to moment-by-moment relationships, to his own inner life, to the planet in specific ways, you know, that there was a sense of, of sort of acting as if and checking out, that the midlife crisis is really a response to that man's journey or, you know, men's journey that, that follow that pattern but that there were always artists and again, (laughs) people of different genders and different races that just didn't fit into that model, that weren't climbing that same ladder. And so even though the midlife crisis is not explicitly spoken about as based on a, a white male hetero journey, it really is, that's the dominant notion. So what I'm offering is, hey, Existential crises, first of all, are happening more and more and more for people earlier in life because the latter is unsatisfying. It was unsatisfying to me when I was 14 and I could already see where it was ending. It's unsatisfying for people who are paying attention to the world being in an enormous amount of pain with endless struggles and not wanting to climb a capitalist, heteronormative, white ladder and then say, okay, well, I did that. Now what? Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm postulating that the midlife crisis is one happening much earlier than it historically has. And I think that's always been kind of a basis of the understanding of the quarter life crisis, that it's an early midlife crisis. But what I'm also offering is that there have always been people who didn't fit into that standard story of adulthood, but just weren't part of adult psychology. Then they just they were written out as the criminals or the freaks or you know, the geniuses even, they somehow didn't conform. And so rather than being a part of of developmental psychology, they were just sort of ignored. And so this dominant story took over. Knowing that a heteronormative white male archetype dominates most of our psyche, unfortunately, even though we are working tirelessly to try and move away from that how can we start to prepare the younger generation children for quarter life what does it look like to set them up for this ability to straddle stability and meeting i love that question because i i spend a lot of time in the conclusion of my book speaking to the societal systemic issues that make quarter life so much more painful than it has to be. That I am a clinician, I work with people psychologically, but I can't divorce that from the society in which we are raised or, you know, or the cultures in which we're raised, subcultures, whatever. We all have different experiences of this, but we live in a world in which we know that if you're a black man in America, you fundamentally have a different quarter life than you do if you're a white man in America. And of course there's spectrums on all of these things. It should not be an obstacle course trying to get to a happy future. We should not be laying out a torture chamber 
for so many of our quarter lifers, so many of our citizens as they try to build productive lives. I want to live in a country that says, hey, we are so excited that you're here and we are so excited that you're entering adulthood and we want to make a fulfilling life as, as possible for you as we can. And we, we hope you'll be a productive, happy citizen. We don't want to fill our jails with young men. We don't want to be afraid of other young men. We don't want our young women to feel as though if they are in trouble, raped, scared, accidentally pregnant, that they can't get the reproductive health that they want to have. I mean, there are so many ways that quarter lifers are this sort of implicit part of political and social conversations. And yet, because we don't really talk about it as a stage of life, we just kind of forget that. We talk about various demographics, but we don't talk about this stage of life as being an exquisitely vulnerable time that is also legislated against and made punitive in countless ways. That the police and the politicians are very frequently against quarter lifers in shocking ways when these are folks who are really just trying to create their lives with very little social support, let alone financial support, I could go on. I would like to live in a society that takes quarter lifers seriously and offers support in various ways. This is such an important conversation. And I, I think even for me, as soon as I looked at your book, I really felt like I was being seen mm-hmm. in terms of how important this time is as I actually start to exit it. I turn 36 next year. So I'm kind of, you know, towards the end of that. But I hope that anyone who listens to this that is currently in that stage or is parenting someone in that stage really sees your framework as a way to have more elasticity in that time and a way to think of it as less of a transient time as, as a place where there can be deeper understanding of oneself. And I think that's the value of, even though we live in such a hard fraught time, there is a lot of illumination happening around how we are actually living even inside of the difficulty. I'm so glad that you took the time to talk to me today. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to my chat with Satya Doyle Bayok. Her new book, Quarter Life, The Search for Self in Early Adulthood is publishing on July 26th. I highly recommend you pre-order a copy today. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.